You know, I think I'm just going to stop saying what I've said for many years, uh, that national security, regardless of administration, is going to be a big issue and a top issue. The fact is, national security, foreign policy, our interconnectivity in the various issues uh, that arise matter 24-7. And it matters to you on Main Street, not just in the halls of the State Department, the Pentagon, on the seas and around the world in our embassies and in the uh, various meetings between world leaders, whether they be friends, frenemies, opponents, or outright enemies. So I think I'll just put that aside. I think I've just made a broadcast career decision to stick with the simple fact that national security and foreign policy always matters. In the first 100 days of the Biden administration, John Kerry has received some, but probably not much of the level of reporting you would expect when there are clear facts, evidence, the facts are in the center of the table, of interactions he had both as a private citizen and in his elected and now his selected capacity with those who are our enemies, such as the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism in Iran. What about the Biden administration? What does this say about what this could look like and actually, more importantly, what it is right now? John Elliott joins me, former National Security Advisor for President Trump, and now, of course, with the Brighton Group, uh, where he's a managing partner at Brighton Strategy. John, great to have you back. Thanks so much, David, and that was a great introduction. There are few shows that focus on national security and foreign affairs as much as yours does, and you've taken, once again, a great leadership position on that, particularly, I'd like to say, around the issue of China uh, that is emerging as our, well, it has been for the last 20 years, but under President Trump, we started acting uh, to meet the reality that China is our biggest geostrategic threat to the United States right now, and we're locked in a great power competition with China. And you were raising the flag on that very early on, so kudos to you, David. So uh, once again, thanks for having me on. Yes, you bring up absolutely about uh, John Kerry, who we remind ourselves he's the former senator, longtime senator from Massachusetts, presidential candidate. Then he was secretary of state for Obama in his second term. And he was really the author of this or the chief negotiator and part author of this disastrous Iran nuclear deal that was cobbled together in 2015 and the next to last year of the uh, of the Obama administration just really epitomized the weakness that that administration had toward the Iranians. It essentially gave them a path toward a nuclear weapon if they could just hold off for a while is a nutshell. So what happened just recently as global warming czar, which is his new position for uh, President Biden, is that he first of all, was the the first Biden administration official to visit China. And they didn't talk China virus. They did not talk about the global power competition. They did not talk about the Uyghurs. He went over there for the sole purpose of talking about global warming and climate change. So that's definitely, if you're going to send your 
first senior official over there, and he's going to talk climate change as the top thing on the agenda with China. That's a real mistake right there. And so that's sort of a own goal, if you will. It is a it is a uh, error that should never have happened. And then latest, and we'll get into it in, in a bit, but uh, the latest controversy to face the new president, Biden, is that uh, there are news accounts that now his old friend Kerry, when he was secretary of state, actually divulged sensitive Israeli information to the Iranians while he was secretary of state negotiating that deal and talked about some of their attacks in Syria. So what that was that was evolved. What I said in a piece last week is that the carry the latest carry chaos is really a metaphor for Biden's first 100 days on national security. And I just wanted to go through four of those when we have a chance. But that's uh, Russia, Iran, China and Afghanistan. We can go through them as needed. But that's really the tee up right there, David. And once again, thanks for having me on and kudos to your uh, leadership on national security. We're going to get in those four, get into those four areas in a minute, but I want to talk principle. And, and this is principle that is not new to America, but principle in dealing with foreign powers or other sovereign bodies. Uh, you mentioned John Kerry going to China. The first is climate change, which is something that is not achievably. It typically, if you want to have a successful foreign policy, successful inter- interactions for your sovereign cause or causes, you go with the point of addressing achievable or actionable. They can be both. Your enemy doesn't or your opponent doesn't have to agree, but they can be achievable or actionable items. Climate change is not an actionable item based on the reality of what it is as a kind of almost religion for the left and China's actions on that. So that's the first Call it, you know, analysis view for me of why it was a bad idea. However, it was an ideological move for the Biden administration because of the Paris Climate Accords. So why I bring it up in that manner, John, is it's disingenuous is a nice word to use for it. I think this was just an agenda driven play that had no real world teeth. I think you're absolutely right, David. That's a great analysis there. It's not actionable. It's not something that's rather achievable in your words. And to have that with so much that we have on our plate with with China, to have something that's really kind of a gauzy, amorphous, uh, really kind of a uh, idea in a cloud, if you will, and have that as our first issue that we take with our first meeting with the Chinese in their country, it just is fundamentally not serious. The Chinese must look at that and just say, look, we understood we, where we were with President Trump. He was an open book. He was a tough guy, tough negotiator. That's his brand. It has been his whole life. And that they knew that when they were going to do a trade deal with him, that he was going to ask for real concessions, real sanctions on them, and then have those sa- sanctions, to your point, tied to achievable results that we can get from the Chinese in terms of their trade with us and they're allowing us to have trade with them. Uh, in the right way. So that was something that was very successful for Trump. Now they see this as the first really not achievable item and something that really is just a theory anyway, that they, uh, no matter what you think one way or the other, that that would be top of the line for the administration, for the Biden administration is just beyond me. But anyway, the uh, what it did, though, what I said is that it, that move was a metaphor of for Biden's missteps in his first 100 days of national security. And just to really quickly go through that, 
it actually, in, in his first month in office, President Biden's team and President Biden and his team did very well in terms of preserving and in some cases extending a lot of the Trump long list of foreign affairs accomplishments. And I look at this as strengthen, strengthening what we call the quad countries, which is the U.S., Japan, India and Australia in defending a free and open Indo-Pacific. They also maintained the tough sanctions initially on Iran and China, and in fact, increased them in some cases in China on some officials. And then they kept the space force and they also kept our pressure under President Trump to have our NATO allies pay their fair share of our defense. In other words, $400 billion in defense spending. So that was all good in the first month. But then real quick, David, as as you know, and as you've pointed out on your program separately, uh, you had you had the policy on Russia where we've allowed Ukraine, we've allowed the Russians now to not much we can do about it. But Russians have sensed weakness. And just like they did with Jimmy Carter in Afghanistan some 35, 40 years ago, they're, they're now amassing troops on the Ukraine border. And of course, we under, understood what happened there with Ukraine and Crimea under Biden when he was the vice president for o Obama. So that's number one on Iran. We're giving in we're targeting we are telegraphing concessions that we will give on sanctions because iran has the upper hand they see how much biden wants and his team want to have us back into that faulty nuclear deal that president trump pulled us out of and so they're actually in the driver's seat and saying okay well uh it's not just that you're going to commit to moving your sanctions back we need to know what they are where are those specific sanctions and we're actually showing some leg there which is amazing real quick on china there was this disastrous visit about a month, six weeks ago in Anchorage, Alaska, with the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and the National Security Advisor for Biden, Jake Sullivan, where they actually allowed themselves to be lectured on human rights by the Chinese uh, based on some of the Black Lives Matter accusations and the systemic racism meme that has been bought into by the Trump administration throughout the campaign. And they just sat there for 14 minutes and allowed the Chinese of all people to lecture us on human rights. And then the last one is on, Af on Afghanistan, which is that to his credit, President Biden is going to be taking our troops out finally after 20 years there. And he's committed to doing so by September 11th. But guess what? The date that President Trump had agreed was going to be May 1st. And we're already three days after that date. And you better believe if President Trump were in his second term right now, we would absolutely have been long, long gone from Afghanistan. It's just time to wind, wind down after that 20-year-old war. So those are four areas where, the, where we really need to watch and hold the Biden team's feet to the fire on foreign policy, because once again, they had good extensions of President Trump's leadership. The one area I would add to that, David, because I know we got to go here in a moment, is uh, there's been absolutely nothing done on extending the Abraham Accords, which were some of the biggest victories of President Trump in his final year. Just this past year in 2020, he had deals with the UAE, Bahrain. This is Israeli peace deals with UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco. And there's been crickets on that front since then. So we really got to step up that. And the reason why there's crickets on that is everybody's waiting. All the air of the Gulf states and others are are holding back to see what's going to happen with Iran, because if there's a new engagement with Iran, Iran uh, gets out from under the sanctions, then there's probably not going to be a lot of ability to jump into further extensions of the Abraham Accords.
Yeah, and on that front, you know, whether it's economic cooperation, we can add Serbia, Bosnia to that, uh, whether it's outright just recognition or outright working relationship in the Middle East, uh, the word that comes out of that for me, as you and I have discussed, is stability. You know, not love. They're not all going to get along, but there is stability. And of course, Haran's hegemonic views and aspirations, rather, their aspirations is destabilization as a strategy, not just in the Middle East, but around the world with their various operations, whether in the Americas, in Europe, or in other areas. I want to dip my toe back in the China waters in this sense. Uh, John, my guest, John Elliott, former uh, John Elliott, former national security advisor for President Trump. Uh, this is from a Philippine top diplomat, Teodoro Loxin, who Monday sent a tweet, pretty blunt, blatant, and yeah, he's get the F out of their territorial waters, responding <laughs> to the Chinese right. boats, the hundreds of Chinese boats inside the Philippine 200-mile exclusive economic zone. Now, that's a big issue because China's expansion in the waters, and you mentioned the Indo-Pacific region, which President Trump uh, and his team, you and others, clearly identified as uh, important, not just to China and the surrounding waters, but to international commerce, uh, is a struggle fighting back against Chinese expansion, whether it's the taking of the Scarborough Shoals, the Senkaku Islands, when they should say did pre-Trump, other actions building out, improving their or increasing, I don't know about the improvement, we'll say increasing the numbers of their fleet and uh, aircraft carriers, which is projection of force capabilities. And now the Philippines... Uh, they see China intruding even more. So Philippines and Taiwan, I'm concerned about those two as well as Hong Kong because that triangle of, shall we say, incursion and to some degree control, takeover, or foothold gives China a huge advantage in those waters. 100%, David, and you're absolutely right to call out. That was a fantastic tweet, very blunt to your point, but that was a very necessary tweet to show that the Philippine leadership is just not going to stand by and have China push more and more into its waters, its territorial waters, and and exert its influence in, in that region. And once again, with the Quad countries, that was something that President Trump really got together uh, to push out for the uh, Indo-Pacific. And to his credit, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, my boss, I was his spokesman uh, uh, on the National Security Council. And he actually went to visit the Philippines in November. So we're talking just about five five months ago or so. In November, after the election, because it was so important to President Trump, he wanted to convey directly. And we actually brought some uh, some surface-to-surface rockets that they can use to uh, down in the jungle to fight against uh, some terrorist activities that are down in their southern part of their country, as well as us talking with them and O'Brien talking with them and bringing the president's vision in terms of supporting not only the Philippines, but also Vietnam is very wary of the Chinese, as well as what they're doing with Taiwan. So you're absolutely right to put a spotlight on that, David. And that tweet was important, and we just can't keep our eyes off the ball in terms of watching China's activities, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's Philippines, whether it's Australia, whether it's Vietnam. That whole region there is 
under the under the grip of the Chinese military more and more. And that's why it's important for us to end these every every month that we spend more in Afghanistan or every year that we spent in Afghanistan was a year where our eyes off the true target, which is what the Chinese are up to in their region and globally as a strategic threat to the United States going forward. So we need to keep our eye on the ball there, David. You know, I, I we will tackle China in the Middle East another time. I think you and I need to just focus on that. And good thing it's my show, John, so I can go a few extra minutes because there's an important point. Uh, I wonder how important this point is. I won't say it's important because I'm presenting it. But moving forward, you mentioned Vietnam. And I wonder into the economic areas, because, of course, when you think about the dime strategy, economic is a component of that, right? Diplomatic, informational, military and economic. President Trump deployed, where necessary, all four components or parts at times. Vietnam has been expanding manufacturing capacity. I you know, know of builders, literally, who are working to build, American builders, to build out there as the shift from China. Trade balances are being rebalanced, but it takes years. That is one of the issues with Taiwan and why China needs to keep Taiwan under its control. But even beyond that, as Vietnam shifts and becomes a better manufacturing partner in many ways, including possibly going into textiles, that shifts away from China to some degree. And the next set of waters long term for China, I would say they would likely look to Micronesia, which is more closely aligned with Tokyo. Uh, geographically and otherwise and with the West. So China's expansion is not, hey, we've got Vietnam and Taiwan, we took back Hong Kong, and we'll just stay here, is it? At least not from what I look at. Absolutely, David. They're looking over the horizon, literally, when it comes to their partners. It's all of Indochina. It's not just Vietnam, but obviously Vietnam is the greatest coastal country there, uh, has almost the entire coast of the Indochina, but they're looking, uh, they're looking at at uh, Myanmar, Burma. They're putting pressure on there. They're also looking at other areas. You think Micronesia? No question about it. What we felt is that if you look at even islands like Fiji and others, they, you know, they're a third, maybe a quarter of the way across the Pacific from China, and they're even feeling uh, Chinese boats, Chinese fishermen. We have. Chinese fishing boats, we had something like 2,000 of them over in Ecuador uh, on the Galapagos Islands, just trolling and just uh, overfishing those seas, et cetera. So you're talking about just multiple fronts here, but you're absolutely right that it's not just confined to four, three or four countries. It is really a regional and ultimately a global approach. I mean, they're, they're in Africa when it comes to uh, One Belt, One Road initiatives where they essentially give away construction materials and projects for essentially having a control over that economy going forward for some of those countries. And so it's something that we were engaged in for the first time in any administration, Republican or Democrat, in a serious way under Trump. And the key thing is to see that that continues here. And I think that the Biden team understands the threat. Remember, in the campaign, Biden had said that come on, man, you know, the uh, the Chinese are not going to eat our lunch. And then suddenly they sobered up pretty quickly once they had all the briefings and they, they saw exactly what uh, some of the moves that China's been making, whether it's in the Uyghurs or regionally, as you pointed out there. So 
The, the question is now they, they understand the threat, but are they going to be able to take the steps that President Trump has taken? And it's tough because they have an approach and a, a regard for the U.S. that's much less pro-America, America first. They're much less proud of America and of, and of our record when it comes to internal issues here. And that's why they get lectured by the Chinese on human rights. And they would never would have done that under President Trump. You know, let me wrap this with an example of pushback against the Chinese in small form. And this isn't in the news. I happen to know this because I know two of the parties involved in this, but it's on the island of Jamaica where China expanded, built the new Michael Manley Highway, which the which locals don't use because, one, it's got tolls. So the old highway is being used more. I know because I've done the very same drive myself. China uses various ways, REITs, building investment to get into countries. Yet in building out what is a projected, and now the architectural plans are finished again, uh, I know uh, two of the parties involved in this. There is a pushback from that island from many, and there is push from some in government to keep China. Others don't want to build a new government complex with China money. They don't want China building it. Now, there's a personal attachment for me because that House of Parliament's named after my ancestor. And I look oh, at wow. that from a personal point of view that I do not want the George George William Gordon house built by the Chinese. But there is pushback. Right. And if small islands and members of parliament in Jamaica and others can get the idea that this pushback should continue and China shouldn't build your house of parliament, your governmental structure, much like the one in New York, the same approach is being taken architecturally, then they, maybe that's a lesson to others around the world that it's possible. 100%, David. That's exactly right. I wasn't aware of that until you just brought it up here. And that just shows how much if they're in the Caribbean and actually trying to develop relationships like that, that are right off of our own shore. And we know what they're doing inside of our country when it comes to industrial espionage and others and things like the Confucius centers and other areas of propaganda and talking to our faculty and even getting our our scientific faculty in some cases to uh, share with them sense of technology. It's something that we were very focused on under President Trump and his leadership. And the, once again, the idea is, to your point, we need to understand the problem. It's not just close to China. It's now halfway around the world here, to your point about Jamaica, and that it's something we just need to keep our eye on. And hopefully the Biden people will continue the strong leadership that President Trump had in finally addressing the China threat. You know, if nothing else, just leave what's there in place. The wheels have begun to turn, and it's having a diplomatic snowball effect in some ways. Uh, John, always a good discussion. And if you uh, see a picture in the future in the Jaylee Gleaner or an American paper of me marching outside of that building and proposed construction, I will. I will not let what it is tied to my family be built by the Chinese Communist Party, period, end of story. 100%, David. Well, thanks for bringing that up, and it's always a pleasure to be on your show. Look forward to the next time.
Thank you. John Elliott, managing partner at Brighton Strategy Group and former national security uh, advisor. He was the deputy assistant to the president for national security affairs and a spokesman as well. 866-95-PATRIOT-95728-74. I'll be right back. 